0: And Welcome to another episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I'm your host, Ray Harkins, and thank you for joining us. There's a lot of stuff out there, and you do not need to spend an hour a week with me and my guest, but you do, and that's incredible. I've been noticing a lot higher downloads on these uh, recent episodes, and that's incredible. I just can't thank you enough for that. So no matter where you joined up this weird journey... Thank you for doing so, and thank you for continuing to show interest in this. Even though it's free and technically you don't need to do anything besides press a few buttons, I really do appreciate it because obviously it shows some sort of you know commitment to this idea and this discussion and ultimately independent music. So, boom, there you go. Uh, the guest this week, Matt Miner. He is a comic book writer and the creator of Liberator, which is an awesome title, which we will talk about a little bit later. And uh, comics, they're incredible. I've, I've been on such a renaissance recently with comic books ever since I discovered that uh, libraries stock them. And uh, that way I'm able to keep my interest up but uh, save my pocketbook from really depleting all of my funds by buying so many comics. My, my focus is on vinyl. I spend a ton of money on vinyl, so I can't maintain like seven different collections of all these things I'm interested in. Anyways, I digress. We'll talk more about Matt Minor in a second. Propertyofzack.com, they cover all of the latest, greatest, awesomest, sweetest news, reviews, whatever you want with independent music, check there. They will have you covered. You will walk away from visiting that site being like, yo, that's really cool. I didn't know that. I didn't know that that record label had all these awesome people working for them. Yeah, it just kind of really does resonate with me because it's kind of what this show tries to do as well, where it's just documenting this scene, these people that are the creators behind what it is that, you know, is getting put out to the world for people to enjoy. So, visit their website propertyofzack.com. And two other bits of business. Go to the iTunes store, drop a review. Uh, we're like 130-some-odd reviews, and that's incredible. And I really love to see people leaving reviews being like, hey, I don't even listen to podcasts, and this is incredible. Uh, because that just gives me hope, not only for podcasting as a medium, but also the fact that people can kind of join in wherever they find this show, through whatever band or whatever guest I have on, and then start to you know cherry-pick the previous episodes. It's awesome. So... Do that, and I really do pay attention to what you are leaving. And uh, also, visit the website, 100wordspodcast.com. You'll be able to find a bunch of stuff I post there during the week uh, and join in the conversation. It's a, it's a Tumblr page, so for those of you that tumble, uh, you can interact with it that way. And uh, people send me random questions on there as well. Usually, they're, sometimes they're mean, but uh, it's okay. I got thick skin. Anyways, those are the things. We have a mailbag question this week from a person named Ian from Winnipeg. He's 18 years old, and uh, he had a pretty large question, and I'm going to try to answer this succinctly, but for those of you that listen to the show and know me as an individual, know that I don't necessarily condense myself very well. But basically, his his gist is that he is ending college soon, and uh, he wants to play in a band. He's had bands kind of you know, start and fizzle out, and uh, he said, do you think you could give me some advice on being in bands? Uh, and kind of two parts to that. Actually, I could do like a seven hour podcast on that, but two parts that jump out immediately. For one, it's obviously about who you surround yourself with. For me, I just I couldn't write music and I had to look for people who were able to do that. And fortunately, I had a few people, namely two people at the school that I went to who were interested in the same style of music and said, hey, let's try to put something together. Uh, honestly, it was my idea just as far as like, you always need that one person or two people in the band to be like, yeah, let's do this. Like they're the ones that are motivated. They're the ones that are booking the practice space or figuring out those, you know, details and logistics and stuff, which will lead to my second point. But yeah, just kind of surround yourself with people. Obviously there are many different avenues in which you can meet people that share similar interests in music, whether that's, you know, Facebook, any social networking platform and then on top of that finding your local independent ish record store or comic book store like people that are into sort of you know the fringe art as it were Because that way you'll be able to meet some people that uh, you may not have met online or whatever the case may be. So, view your strengths, whatever you're good at, whether it's like, you know, you're a shredder guitar or, you know, you're solid at the drums. Just try to find those people who are like, yeah, I want to try to create music. And don't be so focused on the fact that, like, I want to sound like these three bands. And if people aren't interested in joining with those, You know, jiving with those three particular bands, then I'm not interested in playing with them. So many visions have been completely thrown off based on that fact. And it's like, you know, when you start playing with people, it's just about growing and figuring out ultimately where you want to end up as far as your musical vision is concerned. And I think, you know, the more you play with a person, the more in sync you'll be and then be like, okay, we're going to go there. I never thought I would go there musically, but that's where it's at. So that's one point. Second point, he asked me in particular in regards to like being sort of the business guy of the band. And honestly, if you enjoy like organizing things and like, you know, making schedules and figuring out logistics, like if you're the guy that's in your group of friends, guy or girl, I'm not sexist here. uh, If you were the person that is organizing, you know, birthday plans or, hey, let's meet up here on Saturday at eight and like, let's do this. You are perfect. For being that guy in the band that's like booking shows, that's you know trying to talk to record labels, that sort of stuff. Uh, just because there needs to be one sort of logistical manager, uh, and also you have to be ready to fail, and you have to be willing to learn from your mistakes. Because a lot of times the first you know taste of failure, you're just crushed. And like I, I can so distinctly remember two instances one dragging my bandmates out to a show that we got confirmed in texas doing like a 20 some odd hour drive the show was like all right we'll guarantee you four thousand dollars to play i thought that was ridiculous but of course we said yes so we ended up getting paid oh i think about four hundred dollars uh and i learned from my mistakes it's like okay sometimes these promises aren't what they're made to be uh and then the second one of just like being crushed Absolutely crushed by failure is the first time I tried to book a U.S. tour. And I think I had about, I don't know, like three weeks worth of dates booked. And then maybe about a week or so before, they just all fell apart. And so I didn't let that completely kill me. I apologized to my bandmates. I apologized to the band that we were supposed to be on tour with. uh, But, uh, you know, it was my first try. And I kind of got up and started again and, you know, just learned from that. Uh, that's ultimately the biggest thing. So if you enjoy doing that, and also not getting thanked, like don't expect you know your bandmates to be like, oh dude, thank you so much for booking that show. It's just something you do. You know, you kind of have to shoulder that burden and be like, okay, I'm going to try to do this to the best of my ability, and hopefully my bandmates, you know, don't get mad at me for you know trying something different, uh, or you know, learning from your mistakes. So hopefully that provides you some guidance, Ian. Uh, not like I am some guru on top of a mountain dispensing wisdom, but I'm just speaking from my experience and kind of the the pointers that I've learned over time. So that's for Ian and anybody else that's like trying to play in a band and trying to put something together. Those are those are the little things that you can take away. Let's talk to Matt Miner. He is an awesome dude. This comic that he created called Liberator basically focuses on everyday heroes. These are people that are actually you know not Batman, not Superman. These are people who are part of the animal liberation movement, and they are breaking into laboratories, they are breaking into mink farms, they are breaking into these places where animals are imprisoned and releasing them. And whether or not you agree with any sort of animal rights movement, any (laughs) animal liberation movement, uh, that doesn't matter. What matters is the story. I think it's an incredible way that he portrays these people as just you know everyday people, like you and myself, being able to you know, kind of take matters into their own hands. And, you know, some could argue, like, obviously, a vigilante style. Neither I, I'm, I myself, I'm not endorsing a violent lifestyle because I personally uh, don't adhere to that. But just that idea of, like, you can make the difference yourself. Whether you think you can or not, you can. You can take these actions and, uh, yeah, you can learn from them. So I thought it was a very empowering story. I've only read two of the four issues, but they're both incredible. And so, yeah, I just thought Matt would be a very compelling uh, interview And it turns out he is. Yeah, for those of you who are interested in starting comic books, like this interview is perfect because you'll hear kind of his story and kind of how he started to put the pieces together. And this is a crowdfunded comic. So let's talk to Matt Bynum. <laughs>
1: About my racist grandmother.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did not record that though, so we're good. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but my first exposure to your work and just kind of you know who you are <laughs> was uh, via another podcast by the uh, Dudes and Propaganda. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. They, I don't know if you listened to that podcast at Exa- Escape Velocity Radio. Yeah, they just basically they, when you launched your Kickstarter campaign, they spoke about it, and it was one of those things I was like, "Are you fucking kidding me? Like something like this exists." And then I looked at your page and was, you know, pleasantly surprised that wow, like you know, the Kickstarter is doing very, very well, and you seem to be, you know, on the route of getting funded. And so I, you know, ponyed up some cash and contributed. You know, was just very taken by the the subject matter that you were uh, putting across. Is obviously uh, it comes from a good place. You're very passionate about it. But then on the flip side, it's also this is also meant to be entertainment as well. Once you kind of directly compared it yourself to like yo if you like the punisher you're probably going to like this Mm -hmm. and so it just it just kind of blew my mind that this all like you know existed in the world and i mean obviously it shows the beauty of the internet and everybody can kind (laughs) of have their own little uh, thing going on but yours yours obviously is is much larger than just a little thing um how has the response been i mean i know it's kind of a, a cliched question but has it kind of blown you away that the amount of people that have poked their head up from so many different circles and been like yo liberator's awesome
1: uh yeah yeah i mean it it really really uh surprised me like how positive the response has been um you know i expected kind of like you know the the hardcore punk music scenes um and, and the uh you know the the vegan and animal rights scenes to be behind liberator um what i didn't expect was all the uh all the, you know, professional comic creators and fans and and people who maybe aren't involved in this, uh, you know, subculture of, you know, animal rights activism. Mm -hmm. um, And they've stepped forward and they're like, you know, this is actually pretty fucking awesome. So that has been what I've been really stoked about because that's really what we wanted to do was to present this material in a way that regular, quote-unquote regular people, you know, kind of... uh, could read it and enjoy it and maybe get something out of it.
0: I love that idea because that's like basically what every, you know, show that you go to exists in that world where it's like, all right, whatever we experience here in this, you know, 200 person venue is incredible, but we need to take it out to the, you know, quote unquote streets. And that doesn't necessarily need to mean the streets, but you know, you apply these principles to your daily life and, to have this, something such as this, where it's like, okay, this is something that is rooted in passion and politics, but that can also translate to people who are, you know, by all definition of the term, just you know, kind of kind of normal people, right? <laughs> not not these weird kids in the corner that you know will hang out by themselves,
1: right? Exactly. And you know that that was the most important part of this project was that you know uh, the regular everyday uh, comic reader who already kind of you know, idolizes or worth not idolizes, but, you know, looks up to these masked heroes, yeah. you know, cause I'm, I'm a comic reader from when I was a little kid and, you know, I, I get the, the whole, you know, I love Batman type thing. And so it, it, the most important thing to me was to write this in a way that was entertaining and, you know, existed within this world of direct action, animal rights, animal liberation stuff. Uh, but, but tailored in a way that, you know, these people who already dig massed vigilantes would also enjoy. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a really tough line to toe because obviously it's like you don't want to be so insular to where you're alienating, where people – the actual issue doesn't speak to them, but they may pick a few things that they identify with, you know, so that's, that's hard.
1: Oh, it, it's extremely hard, you know. I mean, you, you're walking this line of, you know, if I say this, is it going to be preachy, but you also don't want to water down – the subject you don't want to candy coat it you don't want to gloss over things you don't want to sugar coat it so i didn't do that either you know so it's just kind of this narrow line and a couple people have thought thought it was preachy but for the most part all the reviews that have been coming in have have said the opposite that they thought it might be preachy but it wasn't so yeah it's good
0: that's cool to back things up You know, the uh, obvious place to start beyond just the, you know, I I had to give the the Liberator plug and sort of the congratulations to, you know, you for launching this (laughs) initially. You were originally from California? Were you born and raised? Yeah, you were, you were by every definition of the term, a military brat.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Minus the brat part. <laughs> <laughs>
0: what, did, yeah. uh, what did your father do in the military?
1: Uh, he was a uh, Russian linguist. So what he was doing um, for a lot of his time was teaching Russian to other people. Uh, but during the time that uh, we weren't getting along with Russia, you know, and things were still a little sketchy, sure. uh, like in the 80s. He was basically listening to Russian radio transmissions and translating them oh, to the military. Yeah,
0: and de- decoding them.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, well, just translating. Yeah, tra- them. But, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's true. He, did, he didn't need a decoder ring. He needed no his Russian he, knowledge. <laughs> correct. What was your family structure like? Was your mom present? Did you have brothers and sisters?
1: Uh, no brothers and
0: sisters. My uh, my dad he was
1: uh, largely not present just because he was. In the military, um, like when we lived in California, you know, I did most of my growing up there and he would be he was stationed elsewhere. Uh Like he was stationed in uh, Monterey and we were up near Yosemite. And then he was stationed in like Augsburg. And, you know, so I didn't really see him a lot growing up. And then they got divorced when I was about 10. so. So that was my family structure. My mom was going to going to school full time and uh also working full time to support us.
0: Got it. What what does your mom do for uh, for a living?
1: Uh well she's retired now but she was a nurse practitioner and oh. she worked she worked in a uh, mental hospital for many years. Oh wow. That's it. That's a challenging field. It's an intense job. I don't know how she uh how she did it. She's a incredibly strong so yeah it's something that i i don't know that i could do
0: yeah yeah it's always interesting when you encounter people especially within your family that take on these um you know what a lot of people would define as monumental tasks or jobs and you're just like yeah that seemed normal to them but like holy crap that's incredible
1: (laughs) yeah and when you're a little kid you don't understand how much how much work goes into this kind of stuff you know i mean yeah she wasn't a nurse practitioner when i knew her but she was working Uh 60 hours a week and going to school full time, you know, I mean, you know, it's just, I don't know how she did it.
0: Yeah, (laughs) totally. And then, uh, and then obviously to spend time with you and raise you and obviously lead you in some right paths. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so you're, I'm an only child as well. So I definitely, uh, identify with that experience. And did you enjoy that experience or were you like, man, I want a brother or sister? Yeah.
1: I mean, when I was a little kid, yeah, sure. I wanted a brother or sister, but you know, I grew kind of, bitter and closed off in my uh in my teenage years and i, I didn't want to talk to anybody so i didn't care
0: you right. yeah you're like this is better that i don't have anybody else bugging me
1: yeah for sure so
0: <laughs> and so where in, uh where in california did you uh spend like you said your formative years
1: do you know where yosemite national park is it's kind of uh northern california yeah it's uh so i grew up uh, right outside of there in this tiny little town um a very uh very rural area, a uh, very racist little homophobic <laughs> town. Uh, no, I, I say that in all seriousness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you like,
0: I'm not being glib.
1: <laughs> it, it, it was an awful backwards little town. Um, there are some good people, you know, if anyone's listening from my high school, you know, I'm not saying everybody was awful, but a whole lot of people were awful, so.
0: Right, well, I I'm sure uh being forced to move every so often I'm sure there's good and bad from the perspective of obviously it gave you a much different view of the world because you got to experience all these different cultures and people, but then you are landlocked a lot of these times where it's like you are in this small town that's like, I got I got no way out of this right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, after my after my parents divorced, you know, I wasn't moving around anymore until uh until I graduated high school. So from age 10 to, to 18 or 8 to 18 or something like that. I was, I was in that town, you know. But before then, you know, like when I was in Germany and whatever, I mean, that was an incredible experience. My, my best friend was this Turkish kid. We actually did our thing, the thing where you cut your hands and become blood brothers. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. I remember when that was that <laughs> was uh, a normal thing to do?
0: I I never actually went through it, but I remember because I was extremely well. I still am extremely close to my mom, and I remember telling her about that, and she was like, "That is an awful idea." There's this yeah. thing, there's this thing called cleanliness, and like you know bodily di- you know diseases. I was like, "Oh shit, you're right." Like, okay, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I didn't ask her permission. We no, just no, did it. you you're, know, I was a little
0: kid. Yeah, you're smart. I I was. Just, <laughs> I was a total nerd and had to do that, like, Hey mom, I need your permission to be a blood brother. <laughs> right. But yeah. Wow. So that's that's
1: that's good. You did that in Germany. You know, from age eight to eighteen I was kind of in this tiny little town. I mean we didn't even have cable TV. Um You know, I mean, it was very, uh, very insulated from from the outside world. And I wanted to get out really bad. And, um, you know, I was bullied as a kid. I was picked on a lot because, you know, I was not the only kid in school with purple hair and and, and piercings. And, you know, this is back in the uh, late 80s, you know. So, I mean, it was tough for a while there. Sure. And then, uh, you know, I graduated in early 90s and and moved to uh, Portland. And, you know, things changed completely. Sure. You know. I, I got to Portland, and there were
0: people who, uh, who didn't call me a fag every day. It was cool. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as as uh, cliched as the saying is, of it's, it gets better. It obviously, it does, because you start to be able to choose to surround yourself with people who you can identify with, as opposed to being stuffed in a room that you had to figure out how to survive.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Comics came into your life, like you mentioned, as a little kid. And then how did that kind of coincide with your musical upbringing?
1: uh well comics when i was a little kid i mean when i was a little kid we still had comics in grocery stores so you know we'd go grocery shopping and there'd be the spinner racks of comic books and you know i'd bug my mom 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 please get me you know over and over and over Um, and as far as music goes i mean i was really insulated so you know like in high school i was into you know like ramones and Sex pistols and Mm -hmm. stuff like that and then it wasn't until getting out of high school that I, you know, really started branch out and discover there was more than the, uh, than the big names of punk rock. And, but, but in high school, I definitely found, you know, kind of a, you know, this music really resonated with me just because I was a nerd who was picked on and, You know, these these people making this music were also nerds who were picked on. You know what I mean? Mm
0: -hmm. Since you were in such an insular community, how did it kind of even get introduced to you? Because obviously this was pre-internet. Yeah, I mean, it was pre-internet. I didn't even have, we didn't have
1: cable TV growing up. Um, We were in an area of town that wasn't, it wasn't even offered to us. So, you know, it was introduced to me through friends who had moved from larger cities. Like I remember one, one friend who came from a San Bernardino and, you know, he's who introduced me to like the germs and uh, dead Kennedys and stuff like that. You, you, you pick stuff up from from kids who come from bigger cities, you know, but but then you don't know anything outside of those bands right you know what i mean because yeah. you're not going you're not going to shows because there aren't any shows you know for hours
0: no yeah you're in, not- in any
1: direction right so it's not it's not like you're hearing about you know you're not seeing this opening band and then picking up their cd because you didn't you, you never went to the show you know
0: because everyone always talks about like having to put in work in order to you know find out about these bands and do this sort of research and whatever you know pre-internet days like we were talking about huh. but when you're not given the ability. To do any of that work because you know you know you can't go to a record store like right. what are you what are, what are you, you can't find a zine because it's not like a kid down the street is doing a zine on punk and hardcore <laughs> no. so yeah you were you were left to your own devices and kind of piecing it together
1: yeah pretty much kind of identify with this music and then once I got to Portland it you know it was all over I was I was at shows as much as I could be and uh, right. it, it it was like a whole new world opened up to me you know musically and With everything else you know
0: and so as you were kind of transitioning out of high school i i presume your high school experience because you were picked on like did you uh did you care about your studies at all or is it like yo i just need to get out of here alive
1: i I actually did care about my studies i mean i was in some ap classes um my senior year of high school i was I, i did pretty well um you know math was not my thing so my senior year of high school i was in you know ap english and i was in all these creative writing classes and then i was in uh like remedial math just just Mm -hmm. so I could pass high school because I had failed algebra one three years. So at that time in California it was a requirement, I don't know what it is now, but you had to have two years of math to pass high school and I had failed Algebra One three times and, you know, passed it on or I failed it twice, passed it on the third time barely. And they told me you can go into geometry and risk it. Or you can take this remedial math class so you can at least graduate high school. You know, I mean, it was crazy.
0: Yeah, and you're like, sign me up immediately. <laughs> yeah, right. It's so funny because I find so many people that have, I mean, it seems like you have a somewhat of a strong English background. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it's so funny because you, you can totally draw that line in the sand where it's like, OK, you're good at English. You're going to suck at math. Like, it's just a reality. Yeah. Some, so
1: some people are just just that way, you know? I mean, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 st- I, I still don't know my times tables because I can't remember them. <laughs> I, yeah, s- yeah, I swear yeah. I'm like dyslexic with numbers.
0: That's funny. Nine times nine? Couldn't tell you that. Well, you, at, least you, at least you passed. What was your sort of like, quote unquote, career path? What were you like? All right. I want to sink my teeth into this.
1: In high school, I really wanted to be a writer. And so I wrote and submitted for, for years after years of rejection, past high school too, I kind of finally gave that up, and I don't know. I kind of got into drugs and alcohol, and that kind of wrecks your motivation to uh, to do anything with your life sometimes. So,
0: what were you attempting to? What were you submitting? Were you doing like works of fiction, nonfiction? What were you trying to accomplish yeah, from that perspective?
1: I, I was doing fiction, prose, and uh, you know, I was submitting wherever uh, wherever I could. I mean, this is mm-hmm. before the internet, so I had, you know, the big thick writer's guide book that kind of collects up everywhere that you can submit to. And uh, you know, I was sending off submissions left and right and after years and years of rejections, I just just like, you know, this isn't for me. I can't right. I can't do this anymore. That's the wrong message to give because I wish I would have kept on, you know, because now that I am writing and i am being published i'm like fuck i wish i would have just kept on and you know not, <laughs> not gotten involved with drugs and not gotten involved with alcohol and you know just kind of kind of kept on yeah doing this well, thing
0: it's also it's also hard like removing the you know drugs and alcohol aspect of obviously like you said how it kind of kills your motivation but i mean it's hard because obviously especially when you're in your early 20s you know you i mean you have no fucking clue what you're doing so you're trying to you know find your voice and you don't know, like like you said, you're just scattershot submitting everywhere. To receive those rejections, you're like, you know, you're probably submitting to places that had, you, you know, you had no business in submitting to. So. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. So it's definitely hard where it's like, I don't think the message necessarily is wrong, but it's just like, well, it'll, you know, sometimes it takes you years to find that voice. And like, obviously, you know, it can be a testament to what you're doing now where it's like, yeah, it just, you know, it took me a while. <laughs> and, you know, the stupid
1: thing is, I mean, this is the Early '90s, we're talking about now, and comics were in this like boom. I mean, yeah. it was the speculator boom, and I was reading tons of comics, and it never, not once, occurred to me why don't I try and write comics?
0: <laughs> you know, That's I a, mean, I'm yeah, trying yeah. to write
1: all this other shit, and comics never occurred to me. Yeah,
0: I, I, I have no idea. I, <laughs> It's not, it's, it's something that's so funny and obvious, like in hindsight, but I mean, I see this, like my wife is a high school English teacher and I see, <clears throat> I see a lot of her kids, like, you know, you know, whatever they, they have an idea of what they want to do with their lives. And it, it's just like it, taking that idea and maybe distilling it down to a smaller version and trying to figure out a way to make money off that smaller version. And sometimes you just don't see it because it's right in front of you. And you're just like, oh, there's no way. Like, dude, Stan Lee, how could I ever become that? Right. Like, <laughs> right. You don't have <laughs> to be Stan Lee. <laughs> right right it's such an insurmountable goal and right you just gotta break it down and sometimes yeah the most obvious things are right in front of you and yeah you just didn't see it yeah (laughs) what pulled you up to portland um well
1: i i I went there because my uh i mean for for a few reasons it was close you know from northern california my cousin was there and uh he had a job that he was offering me oh okay tech work computer repair um and I I wanted to go to school up there. You know, that was short-lived. You know, I had, I had these reasons to go up there. Plus, you know, uh, I mean, I know it sounds really stupid, but I spent all these years kind of being picked on in this tiny little redneck town. And, you know, the grunge scene was exploding and, you know, the punk scene was still around um, more so. And I was like, you know, why don't I go somewhere that's fucking cooler than this town? <laughs> yeah. You know, and go to Portland. And, you know, I was... I was a lot happier there, so I think yeah. I had the right choice. I mean, I love that town. I I I consider that my hometown over uh-huh. over my real hometown. I mean, I moved around so much that I don't have a real hometown. So I right. consider Portland my hometown.
0: Right. Well, yeah you 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 can define that as your home. Like you were you may have spent time elsewhere, but it's like that's probably the first place you felt comfortable.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And so you're uh you know obviously because you are an unapologetic you know, animal rights activist. When did, uh, when did that kind of become part of your life? Was that in like, high school as well, or did that, that happen later on?
1: Oh, yeah, that happened much later on. I mean, you know, I was a big meat eater, and you know, I always considered myself an animal lover because you know, I loved my cats and, and stuff. But, uh, mm-hmm. but I, I didn't really make the connection until about 10 years ago. Okay. You know, there was, there was a night that I, I literally Googled Animal cruelty videos because I wanted to figure out what made vegans. You know, I I I knew some vegans and I was like, you know, what what is it about this that's you know that that's so terrible, right? Um, I was like, oh, you know, I I wanted to see if it was really as bad, right? Yeah,
0: you're like, how bad could it be? Come on, how bad could it be?
1: Exactly. So, um, you know, and I stuck with it, and I, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, I could never watch that, and then they continue eating meat and. And, you know, wearing leather and all that. Uh, right. Because because they don't want to see the reality. But I stuck with it that night. And I watched video after video. By the end of the night, I decided I was going pescatarian. And after a week, I saw how ridiculously easy that was. So I went vegan immediately. So within seven days of me Googling animal cruelty videos, I was vegan. And <laughs> I haven't changed yet. So
0: Well, that's cool. I, I, I always like how everybody that is into you know, veganism, animal rights in general, like, they always have that one singular story where it's like, yeah, here was the moment where shit changed. Yeah. And it's like, it's so definitive. And every, like, almost everybody that I've ever spoken to about this, like, has that moment of like, oh, yeah. It, like, some people can even pinpoint the date. They're like, yeah, December 27th, you know, 1997. Yeah. I'm like, that's just, it. it's awesome that obviously... Resonates with people that much, you know.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, it's a big epiphany when you've been taught your whole life that uh you know it's just the natural order of, of things that you know we eat meat and we drink milk and this is what we do and it's okay and you know animals have to die to, to feed us because otherwise what would we do? We eat sticks and grass and you know <laughs> you're you're told all this crap and you're you're fed this line of bullshit that you know vegetarian guys and vegan guys are a bunch of a weak pussies and. This that, <laughs> you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you're fed all this propaganda. And so, you know, you just, you just come to accept this as true. And so when you actually decide to take a look, you know, behind the curtain, I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretty big wow moment, you know? Sure. So of course people are going to remember that because y- yeah, it, yeah. it rocked my world that night. You know, I mean, I started crying. I was watching these videos. I was bawling at my computer. You know what I mean? So yeah.
0: Well, I think it's it's really cool for you, too, because, you know, typically a lot of people have that experience that you're speaking about when they're in high school or when they're younger, because obviously your synapses are so open to any decisions that you can make on your own. Because a lot of times, you know, like when you make a decision to, you know, put some label on yourself whether it's you know veganism straight edge whatever like you know any label that you can feel like you can put on yourself and you have that level of like i can control this in my life i'm making this decision and that's like the first decision you could make because you're in high school normally that's never afforded to you and so it's cool that you had that experience later on in life because usually the stereotypical response of people even over the age of like 25 they're like oh dude i'm setting my ways like i'm good yeah. Right. It's like, really? Like, no, there's, you could still learn.
1: You know that? Yeah, I know. Right. I mean, I'm always I mean, I, I claimed edge three years ago. I mean, I'm, I am I claimed edge at thirty five. You know, that's, I, that, that's so good. I finally, you know, got my life straightened up and I was still smoking cigarettes. And I was like, you know, I got I got a little sick and I was like, fuck this, you know, you know, I don't want to I don't want to poison myself anymore. I don't want to I don't want to live this way. So, yeah, I mean, it was like, One of the best things I ever did for myself.
0: I think something that you could uh, maybe your motto can be just like, hey, better late than never. Like, (laughs) you know, so so, like I may not have started writing comic books when I was like 20, but I'm doing it now. So there you go. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I,
1: I guess I'm a I'm a late bloomer or something. I don't know.
0: To me, I think that's that's more compelling. You've gone down certain paths for so long; it's hard to change these things that have been wired in you for years. And I I like that. I I like that that you have arrived here at a later stage in life, quote unquote.
1: Well, I mean, I'm always learning. Now I'm learning more about uh, feminism, and it's like if I can uh, if I can help in a small way, like with this comic book in portraying a uh, a strong female uh, lead who isn't objectified or drawn all sexy and you know women can uh not be offended reading then why wouldn't i do that you know so, yeah. so I, I'm, I'm i'm always trying to kind of learn and better myself you know in this way
0: yeah i think that's a great philosophy to have was it was it primarily drugs or alcohol was it both that you were battling with no it was both yeah yeah yeah, yeah usually they come hand in hand yeah <laughs> uh that was a big a, mess <laughs> Yeah. So I I find that interesting because, you know, uh, I mean, obviously you can say this now because, you know, you can reflect on it. But a lot of people don't really mention the fact that kills your motivation. Usually it's just like, you know, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm fucked up with friends or whatever. And like the whole party atmosphere. And it's like a lot of people don't really take the time to reflect on the fact that, oh, yeah, like this just puts you in a pit of despair and you can't really get out of it. and It kills your motivation. That's like... Is huh. that kind of what the the circle that you were in, or was it just like? Well, I think it's more of a more
1: of something I'm realizing after the fact. Sure. You know, when I'm looking back and I'm going, "Well, why didn't I do this with my life? Why didn't I do that?" And it's like, "Well, I was fucked up. You know, I was drunk. <laughs> I was hung up. I was hung over all the time. You know, uh-huh. who, who's gonna who's gonna do this when they're high on crystal meth? You know, that kind of thing." I think it's something that I'm I'm realizing uh, later. You know, now mm-hmm. that I'm sober, I'm like, "Man, you know, if I if I hadn't been drunk." Those years straight, maybe I could have gotten something done with my life. At the same time, if I hadn't had those experiences, I might not be the same person I am now.
0: It's a total catch-22 because it's like you look at, especially negative experiences, obviously we as humans have a tendency to shut those down. Like we don't remember them as easily as we remember, you know, this amazing sunset that I saw on this day or whatever. We just forget about bad shit because, you know, I mean, we can carry it around, but in order for us to continually move forward, we try not to think about that stuff because it's right. crippling. Right. So I totally, I, I can get where you can be reflective on that now because obviously you're in a better place, you know, with that, like what pulled you out of that to begin with, you know, like, cause obviously like you said, you know, you didn't, you know, wake up one morning and say like, Oh, here, I'm going to be straight edge. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> whoa. What, uh, yeah. Unlike,
1: unlike going vegan, uh, the, the journey to me, um, being straight edge was long. I had a problem with crystal meth for, for a lot of years. And you know what, what got me off that was basically moving somewhere where I didn't have it available to me. And I okay. decided that was okay. I wasn't going to go looking for it. I didn't want to be addicted to this drug. That got me off of that. But then I picked up alcohol. And then I picked up an addiction to prescription drugs. So those were my three big ones. Um, the alcohol was the hardest to get off of. And mm-hmm. the prescription drugs were the last one I got off of. I mean, besides cigarettes.
0: Were you participating in a scene to this type of stuff? Like, you know, were you going to shows and like your friends were doing, you know, like a crystal meth is a drug that I, I have no experience with. <laughs> like, what, <laughs> yeah. what I mean, not not only personally, but just none of my friends have experimented with that. What sort of road does that lead you on? Like, you know, what is is it? Uh, it's not a depressant. It's a. No, it's a stimulant. Stimulant. I could could not think of the word for it. Yeah. Um,
1: I mean it you know, with enough drugs you can be up for a couple of weeks. You know, in Portland a lot of my friends were gay and uh and it's kind of like a, a party drug. Okay. It, at least in the in the nineties it was. I mean it was less white trash than it is now, basically. Right. <laughs> so right, right. It was uh it was big in the clubs and you know, because you could, you know, do a few lines and stay up all night and Got it. have a, have a good time and et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I was kind of hanging out with a lot of people who were doing doing the drug then. You know, I moved around a couple of times and, and it stuck, you know, I, I ended up finding the drug. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it started getting trashier and scarier. And, you know, then I was just doing it to kind of, uh, you know, feel good and sure. ma- maintain my my lifestyle. I wasn't hanging out with people that were doing it. I wasn't having you know, an an awesome time anymore, it was just maintenance. And, you know, I didn't want that anymore.
0: And I had a house, I
1: had a house fire uh, that probably partially because I was messed up on crystal meth and we left candles burning. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And this is one of those bad things that you try not to think about, but then you also try and kind of learn from, you know what I mean?
0: Fortunately, because you obviously made it out the other side, to where you you have a clear enough head that you can look back on this and been like, what what do I what do I derive from this experience that can obviously help inform who I am now?
1: Yeah, yeah. With the alcohol, yeah. I mean, I was going to a lot of punk shows and we would always get wasted before or during or both.
0: <laughs> sure, all the above for that.
1: Yeah, with the prescription prescription uh, addir- addiction, you know that that came about because I have issues with anxiety, and mm. so. I was dating somebody who said, you know, why don't you go to a psychiatrist and see what they can do for your anxiety. And I did. And what they wanted to do was put me on all these pills. So I did it and I started abusing them. So I picked up another doctor and, you know, so I could have two doctors writing me prescriptions. And, you know, then I picked up a third doctor at one point and it was just a big mess, you know. Sure. And somehow my insurance was paying for all these. (laughs) Oh,
0: my gosh. Yeah, true.
1: Yeah, because you figure out what the insurance is going to pay for, and they won't pay for two prescriptions of the same med, but they will pay for two pres- two prescriptions of similar meds. So you have you know this doctor prescribing these three, and this doctor prescribing these other three that are similar.
0: You're being you're being resourceful to something that was destructive. <laughs> yeah, totally
1: destructive, and yeah, you know during this this time with this pill addiction and alcoholism. I got off. Mm. I got off the booze because I, I realized I was going to kill myself. Sure, and you know I stayed on the pills because there is this idea that you know prescription meds are medicine, where you know alcohol is you know a drug and alcoholism is bad and right, you know. But but the medicine it's prescribed to you by a doctor, so you, so it feels safer. I don't know why.
0: In moderation, like I mean, both like my my wife my mother a lot of people in my family battle with depression right um not anxiety but depression so a lot of what they you know they're, they're all medicated but obviously it's like they're taking one pill a day it's definitely one of those things that obviously is not spiraled out of oh no, i wouldn't even say spiraled out of control but done the extent that you know some people can easily abuse that type of stuff right and, and that
1: so- the antidepressants aren't really abusable it's, sure. Yeah, it's the it's the anti-anxieties like you know the Xanax and whatnot that you can really true. have a problem with. And I also have attention deficit problems, and so you know I was taking I was getting you know Adderall and all that, which is basically like crystal meth. So you know I was abusing all those too at the same time. You know, and one day I realized you know I I had, I had met my my now wife, and mm-hmm. you know things were things were going really well, and then I saw that things were not going so well and i realized what was going on is you know that my addiction was going to destroy this relationship and so i quit cold turkey
0: nice you need you need those motivating factors to kind of snap you back into some sense of reality otherwise it's hard to live in that world because you're not living in the world that is present in front of you <laughs> and so all, all, all during this time were you just doing kind of like uh you know tech work and you know uh, it work and stuff like that or were you doing kind of you know various jobs throughout that time
1: uh various jobs i mean i i only did the tech work for a little while most recently i was working at a nonprofit. um i mean i was i was involved in animal activism uh, during the you know battles with alcohol and drugs too you know, that almost got me in trouble a few times because you show up to a demo drunk and, you know, you're, you're pounding on Fendi's windows and, you know, you're putting everybody in danger.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's something I never really considered.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, well, most people are smart enough not to show up to demos drunk. So
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh-huh. I had
1: my clean canteen at a demo and I had poured all this banana liqueur in it and then topped it off with uh, chocolate soy milk. And that's, <laughs> what I, that's what I was drinking at demo's. Oh my god. That's I mean that's that's how stupid I was. Sure. I mean, that's sure. how much I just didn't give a fuck. And I well, got I got home so drunk and so fucked up that day that the person I was seeing at the at the time was like, you know, you have a problem and you need you need to get this fixed. Yeah. And the next day I was thinking about it, I was like, I do need to get this fixed.
0: You, you use the words like, you know, you didn't give a fuck. You didn't give a fuck about yourself, but clearly you gave a fuck about something beyond yourself, you know? Yeah, Like, <laughs> it's just, it's interesting how those two, uh, you know, views can obviously pull you in different directions. Once Liberator obviously started to come into your life and that, that, that comic started to, you know, kind of crystallize in your head, was it one of those things that it was like, you know, literally one day you woke up and you're just like, this, this needs to exist. And I want to try to put these pieces together to make this happen. Because obviously comic book publishing is not easy at all.
1: No, it's not. It's 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 really hard. Um, it's sort of, it came about like that. Um, back ten years ago, when I that night that I was you know googling, googling videos, yeah, I found videos of you know the Animal Liberation Underground (ALF) actions. I was like, you know, mixed in with you know, meet your meat and the hunting and life sciences videos. I found these videos that were like a little more inspiring because instead of animals being tortured, it was animals being taken out of torturous places. And I saw these, you know, people with the, you know, the masks and the black clothes. And I was like, fuck, these guys are like superheroes for animals. Uh-huh. Immediately, I thought, wow, this would make a really cool comic book concept. And kind of it's always been in the back of my mind that, you know, somebody should make this comic book. You know, why isn't this a comic book? And I'm reading about Batman and I'm reading Spider-Man and all this crap. And I'm like, fuck, why isn't there, a, you know, an animal liberation kind of comic book? And then, you know, years later, kind of I had that. That you know, click. Where I was like, well, why don't I just do it? You know, why don't I stop waiting for someone else to do it because they're probably going to do it wrong and fuck it up. uh <laughs> right. Why don't I just do it myself? So
0: yeah. And by this time, you were, for all intent and purposes, you were just a fan of comics. You had no connections within the quote unquote industry or anything to put together from that perspective, right? Right. No. No. At at
1: at at the time that I decided that I wanted to make a comic book, I I didn't know anybody.
0: Yeah, which is incredible. Like I just love that because obviously that goes to show like, you know, when people want to put something out there in the world, people can think of 10 reasons why they shouldn't, but then as long as they stick to the one reason why they should, that will hopefully guide you through those 10 reasons why you shouldn't, you know? Like, yeah. oh, I don't, I don't know anybody in the comic book industry. How the fuck am I going to pay for this? How's this going to exist? Yeah, yeah. Those are all <laughs> very important
1: questions.
0: <laughs> yeah, very important questions. The, uh, I mean, the Kickstarter was like a massive success. I mean, you were like 120% funded, weren't you? Yeah, it was. And so at, at that point, did people start to like become more interested from the industry perspective because obviously it was um you know successful and that's like kind of how black mask came into the picture
1: yeah definitely after the after the kickstarter showed that there was interest enough to you know at least make one series of comics about this um there was definitely more interest from the comic book community i mean i had drummed up some interest Along, along with you know other people helping me out, of course, um, we had drummed up some interest and some publicity within the co- the comic book world uh, before the before the Kickstarter's end. But afterwards, definitely there was more. And then after um, the first issue was published, there was a lot more because people saw that it wasn't just piece of shit preaching to the choir.
0: Yeah, here's this little this little pebble in an ocean. This isn't even going to mean anything. Right. A, a main crux of the profits from Liberator. You're obviously dedicating to the work that you do. I mean, is your day job focused on animal rescue? I, I,
1: I don't have a day job that pays money right now. Sure. Uh, you know, my my day job is making these comics, and, uh, which so far has cost me a lot of money, but hasn't made me anything. And then the animal rescue work and the fostering and... And stuff like that is, uh, I mean, it's all volunteer stuff. That's what takes up all my time.
0: Like I was saying, uh, you know, uh, a large portion of the proceeds that you have made from Liberator for all the sales, like obviously goes directly back into the work that you do with Animal Rescue. Yeah,
1: 100% of my profit share. Anything I get is going back to animals because I didn't think it was right to make a comic book about this subject without having at least my share of the money go back towards work with animals.
0: You literally put your money where your mouth is,
1: Yeah liter- well, not literally
0: figuratively there <laughs> yeah,
1: <we
0: go>. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not putting money in my
1: mouth. it's gross, it's yeah. dirty.: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah,
0: yeah. I definitely misuse literally a lot of the time. <laughs> I think most people do. yeah I know. Um, when I saw the news or you joined up with Black Mask, it was uh, it was obviously pretty interesting to me, coming from my like you know the music background and obviously from where you come from as well, um, that everybody that's involved with it has a background in playing in bands. Yeah. And that's uh, obviously that in and of itself is really cool that those two uh, mediums of music and comic books can kind of come together in a, in a collective experience where you just kind of like, well, is this really happening when they first started to get in touch and it started to come together? The, the way
1: that I found them was through the Occupy Comics uh, project that they were, they were doing. Uh, mm-hmm. somebody, somebody on Twitter, um, an anonymous Twitter that I follow, pointed me to them. To the Occupy Comics thing and was like, hey, have you heard of this? And I saw that it was being put together by this Black Mask uh, Studios group. And uh, I did a little research and saw that Steve Niles was involved. And Steve and I, Steve's uh, a horror comic writer and he was in the band Grey Matter. Mm-hmm. And he and I had already kind of become buddies on Twitter And I was like, wait a minute, Steve's one of the principals of this of this label. And I was having a hard time finding a good fit for Liberator, you know, somebody who would publish a comic with progressive, maybe even contentious um, political themes. Mm -hmm. I saw, you know, they were doing Occupy Comics and Steve Niles was involved uh, as one of the uh, publishers. And so I uh, I got a hold of Steve and said, hey, you know, can I can I talk to you for five minutes? I have something that I've been working on. Mm -hmm. And so we talked. He allowed me to pitch it. It was wild when they said that they were going to pick it up. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. <laughs>
0: yeah, I love that story just cuz it's like you created it on your own as well. It's like you put something of interest in front of somebody that's like, "Oh, this looks great. Like, let's work together." Cuz like the I think so many people, especially when creating art, Is that there's this idea, you know, like if you're playing in a band, like you have to wait for a record label to find you or whatever. You play with a local band that signed that label and then that band goes, yo, this band we played with last night's awesome. And then the label ends up checking you out. It's like just a matter of like kind of putting yourself out there, not in an annoying way, obviously, and just like, you know, punishing people with emails after emails. (laughs) Like, have you checked it out yet? (laughs) Yeah, none of that. Yeah, yeah. I just like I like I like the way that it obviously all organically came about for you, as opposed to, um, you know, just kind of forcing a square peg in a round hole.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was kind of doing that. I I had pitched it one other place before uh, Black Mask, and, you know, I I've said and I I I continue to say the best thing that ever happened to the project was them turning it down, mm-hmm. and they didn't turn it down because of the quality. They turned it down because it wasn't the right fit. And looking back, I mean, I was really bummed at the time. I was like, fuck, you know, another rejection. But looking back, it's like, yeah, it was definitely the wrong fit for this project.
0: Why were you never interested in, or maybe you were, did you ever play in bands or anything like that?
1: Uh, No, I thought I could sing for a while and it was terrible. And (laughs) I'd never played an instrument, so... (laughs) (laughs)
0: it just never came into your life yeah no
1: yeah talk about forcing the round peg into the square pole
0: (laughs) what was your vision of you wanting to be in a band if you could place yourself in a band that you'd want to sing for what ultimately would you have wanted to do
1: street punk type band is what I wanted and you know I I thought I could sing and it took you know not a whole lot of time to figure out that I couldn't so no no I mean I can't even remember lyrics so I mean it's terrible (laughs) plus you know I was drunk all the time it was fucked sure up time
0: that, that kind of works for some bands like for that. some
1: bands yeah but it was a mess
0: i mean i i always
1: wanted to be but yeah it just didn't work out for me so i'm glad i'm doing this i don't have to sing
0: for comics no 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 you definitely don't yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really appreciate you hanging out and i know it was random but we definitely hit on a lot of awesome stuff i think so all right there you go that's matt and uh a little show note I realized that I think in the you know the middle or maybe towards the 75% way through the interview uh I was stupid and I was like I don't know what meth is I fucking know what meth is like in the sense of I don't even know what it looks like I do I mean I don't have any experience in my own life but uh clearly any normal human uh has watched the show Breaking Bad <laughs> It <laughs> understands what meth is. So yeah, I just had to put it out there because I totally, like, in listening and editing to this show, I was like, oh god, I sound so stupid, but where I was just trying to be earnest. I was like, tell me about it. And then I'm like, no, I, I know what it is. Anyways, the editor for this episode, as always, is Tom Richfield. Mad props to him, as usual, and uh, I think I owe him a Starbucks card. I think it's been a while since I bought one for him, so... Some exciting news in the next uh, week or two. There'll be some pretty pretty rad changes around these parts, so uh, be prepared. And uh, until next week, I will talk to you then. Be safe, everybody.